0: Welcome to the We're Doing It Wrong podcast, a production of WDIW Media, hosted by Joseph Pizarre and inspired by David Michael Slater's book, We're Doing It Wrong, 25 Ideas in Education That Just Don't Work and How to Fix Them. And this is one of my favorite episodes because I got to talk with Dan Meyer, and he's someone whose work I've been following for quite some time, years really now, and I was able to see him in person, you know, give a talk. And Prior to that, saw his TED Talk and was really captivated by his ideas about the nature of mathematical learning and how perhaps we ought to be doing math instruction in schools, what kind of experience students have, and I find his work to be extremely innovative on the front of math education. We talk generally about math uh, as well as uh, a couple specifics, but the conversation really should be applicable to anybody you know why is it that we require kids to learn algebra 2 prior to graduation and out things in algebra 1 so we talk about you know what kind of math we want students to learn and then get into the weeds a little bit on um you know the best ways of learning math we also talk quite a bit about his work at desmos which is an exciting project so it was a real pleasure to have him on So Dan Meyer has been advocating for better math instruction for quite some time. He's done that on CNN, Good Morning America, Every Day with Rachel Ray and TED.com. He earned his doctorate from Stanford University in math education, and he is currently the chief academic officer at Desmos, where he explores the future of math, technology, and learning. He's worked with teachers internationally and in all 50 states, and he was named one of the tech and learning's 30 leaders of the future. He lives in Oakland, California. So without further ado, I bring you Dan Meyer. And I am here with Dr. Dan Meyer. Dr. Meyer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure.
0: So I'm definitely excited to have you on. Um, You're pretty famous in the math educational world, but for our listeners who are teachers of all subjects, I would love it if you would give them kind of a potted history of your uh, educational um, life and career. How did you come to be a teacher? And then how did you come to take the math world by storm, essentially?
1: So um, dad was a teacher. Grandpa was a teacher. I never wanted to be a teacher. I'm a teacher. That's how it goes. So if you kind of make those claims as a kid about your future career as an act of rebellion against your parents, you're going to be that career, essentially. That's kind of like one version of my story here. Another is that I was graduating with a math degree and wasn't sure what to do with that. And some the teacher coordinator at my, my university said, hey, just like do this like um, tutoring program in schools you'll get a feel for what classes are like as you're thinking about like maybe teaching um, so he put me in this like honors class with like pre calculus upper level I, and like I was like yes like these kids worshiped me and I love them and like we had a, a blast I was like yes like I want to do this for my entire my entire professional life and come to find out very quickly that, that those are not the kind of students that you teach every day or even ever in your career especially as a young teacher. like so I was basically um, hoodwinked into teaching and then I was. <laughs> Ultimately glad to be there, but there were some, um, some rude surprises along the way. Um, I was really glad to become a teacher. Uh, when I did, um, three years into my teaching, I got a digital projector, which is now fairly standard uh, materials for teachers. But that was the thing that allowed me to bring in uh, my enormous enthusiasm for applied mathematics from outside the classroom into the classroom, bringing in photos and videos. Not, not the sort where like someone explains a topic in a, a, a canned video. Uh, but where like i i show people just like a scene playing out unfolding it as you might if you were there on the spot and there's some mathematical question that's raised and then we as a class can can start to answer that together It was a, a very uh, at the time anyway it was a unique kind of experience of math in the world in, in, in an environment where like students typically experience those problems on paper with all the information given in advance and oftentimes the the method prescribed in advance and the answer to that problems in the back of the book. This is a situation where there's no information and we are it's up to us to think expansively about how to mathematize it. And the answer played out in front of us. It wasn't in the back of the book. We get to see like, was math really worthwhile in the world? So I was doing that, Um, I was writing about it on a blog back when I was like five, There's like five edgy blogs at the time and I was one of them. And so that got um, some attention from people. I was invited to speak at one talk, one of my first talks I ever spoke at was a a TEDx event. The talk I gave there, I was the last person, I was the undercard, the kind of like the wild card, just throw someone uh, towards the end, um, we don't know very well and that um, talk what went on the TED website, it got, I think it said like, I don't know, 3 million views now. It, it kind, of, kind of went viral in the sense that as these things do, um, got to give lots of talks and meet lots of teachers around the world after that. Went to Stanford for a um, research degree, got my doctorate um, at Stanford with Joe Bowler. And thank you for referring to me as a doctor. I do appreciate that. <laughs> um, and now I work at Desmos. So overall, the overall arc of my career, I think, has been um really uh, excited about mathematics, trying to stay stay interested in as much as possible, as often as possible, and to share um, the fruits and the process of resolving those interesting questions in ways that other folks can, can access has been basically the entire game plan.
0: So more for our listeners who aren't in the math classroom or teaching math, can you speak to Um, kind of at the system level, how do you view the way we're doing math in terms of courses and requirements for graduation? And the reason I bring this up is it's pretty commonly understood that algebra one, and depending on the district requirements, often algebra two essentially become the reason for a lot of students um, who end up not graduating, if there's an academic reason, you know, rather than some of the other reasons why a student might not graduate. So are we are we heading down the right path with the way we're requiring students to learn math and the type of math we're requiring of students? Or should we be rethinking this kind of from the floor level?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm largely horrified by some stories that I hear of students who have really no aspirations for a career in STEM. Uh, in mathematics and science, whatever they want to uh, be a, a communications major or a history major or um, work in English language arts, to liberal arts—I don't know what, like design, like any of those—and um, they are prevented from achieving those aspirations, um, but because they they can't factor a cubic polynomial that has some like rather secretive trick about it that allows it to be factored. Um, some of your listeners like they're hearing gibberish that i'm speaking right now and it's true like it is it is arcane gibberish and if you line up 10 any 10 people any 10 adults in your life um that you think are successful by any measurement including like just like general well-roundedness um you'd give them an algebra 2 final exam and they would like 9 out of 10 would flunk it without question your principles line up 10 uh, principles uh, from your listeners and nine out of 10 would flunk it. It's just not, it's not useful knowledge. And that in itself is not, it's not a, a, the sole uh, criterion that I want to think about with like what our students should learn, like useful for a career is not why we do an education. We, like I learn lots of historical facts and I've read lots of literature that is not useful to me in my career. Um, but it's also um, those things contribute to my my like overall scope of humanity and the world and, and, and the way that a, a general education should. And second year algebra, as it's currently configured, is not at all doing that. It's a it's a system of uh, notation and symbols, and we manipulate those in certain ways that you are are not taught at at a long at long enough duration to make sense to most students. We don't have enough time, teachers don't, to um, teach them in a way that makes sense. And so we wind up teaching them as operations you memorize, whether or not they make sense. And that's um, helping very few people.
0: So, where do we reach that line of basically, uh, we don't want people to be illiterate, numerically speaking, or enumerate, whatever um, word salad I can throw out there to, to get that concept. And so so, at what point? Um, do we say, you know what, this is the the basic level of mathematical knowledge we would want all citizens to have, and now it's time to specialize. And I ask this within kind of the uh, it's a time where we sort of are, are engaging this eternal argument of conceptual understanding versus procedural fluency. So I'm wondering at what point do we say, okay, there are certain concepts that you absolutely need to know to be a well-functioning adult, regardless of your profession. And then are we doing a good job of meeting those concepts or, are, are, imparting those conceptual understandings to students or, or helping them formulate their own conceptual understanding of maybe even some of the very basics.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a couple questions there worth separating out. One is like what is the the level that we should require students to learn at high school and at universities? Like what's where does that top out? And then also like what kinds of knowledge and what ways can you know that? And the second one's a little bit more of a um, a technical question, a little more um, <clears throat> theoretical, conceptual, if you will. Um, so there's uh, my opinion about like what math should be required for all high school graduates in the US personally um, is that every student should understand algebraic reasoning at a pretty good level. Um, not the symbolic manipulation, but I'm referring basically to like the way that we use variables in place of numbers to signify that things change and to ask ourselves, like when, when this one thing changes, what happens to this other thing? Um, that right there is the foundation for like in terms of careers, um, like coding uh, any Excel spreadsheet you use, where you use a cell references using algebraic reasoning, that's powerful stuff. That's, that's the, that's, that is the uh, ticket to ride for 21st century success at this point. I also think we should help students um, learn some geometric reasoning also because geometry describes much of the world that we live in. And geometry is where students really get a solid sense of the deductive logic systems that comprise mathematics for, for centuries and millennia. The, the, way, the way that we, like, we, we know facts one, two, and three, here is why that requires us. Um, to uh, that fact number four is inevitably follows from that. That that to me is not as useful in a career sense, uh, but it speaks to a discipline, um, the tenets of a discipline that have been, you know, in use for such a long time. That's the general education side. Past that allows students to self-select, allows students to select into an advanced algebra track, allows students to select into a a quantitative reasoning track that's, um, you know, would incorporate more statistics than calculus, for instance, which would be on the advanced algebra track. And then colleges and universities should uh, should follow similar suit and not require, uh, not use the, the symbolic manipulation, the symbol pushing, the, um, the arcane, you know, work of numerical monks in their mountain, mountaintop cathedrals to in- interfere with students who like have, who don't have interest in that basically. And it's not useful for a general education. That's, that's the, if I rule the world version of things with a healthy amount of, you know, latitude for individual choices within.
0: Yeah, and I think you know calculus one remains the Achilles heel of many a major, depending on you know the college and the support provided. But mostly, really, depending on the conceptual underpinning necessary to do something like calculus one, and so that's um, I, I think a really significant factor in the conversation here on you know what do we actually care uh, about enough to require of uh, pretty much all students, and it, it has to be. Um, I think grounded in more of the conceptual side of things rather than the procedural just due to our computational world, right? So we don't necessarily care so much that students can get a correct answer every time in this procedure, but we care that they understand certain things like ratios, proportions, percents, algebraic manipulations. And I'm uh, wondering if you see the sort of um, I guess, gatekeepers of Algebra 1 and Calculus 1 actually working against us. And what I mean by that is if I have a student, let's say in Math 6, who's just really struggling with some of the foundational conceptual understandings underpinning things like ratios, proportions, and percents, um, we pretty much have to move on because, you know, this Algebra One's coming. Uh, after a certain amount of time, it, it, it is time to move on. There's not like a, a separate... A pathway for that student, and so then they they memorize their way through Algebra One, let's say, and then we, we end up hitting the wall after that. And so uh, I'm wondering, how do we how do we balance this issue? Do you, do you see that Algebra One and Calculus One as gatekeepers actually make it harder to get conceptual understanding um, out to as many students as possible?
1: I think you're pointing to like a, a couple of serious issues here. One is the curriculum on the math side is just very very stuffed with concepts and it's always easier to teach operations. It's always easier to teach, um, if you're cooking, it's easier to teach like take this measuring cup, measure this out, put that there and continue those sorts of instructions You know, 10 times versus here's what we're trying to do when we make bread and giving students, giving people understandings that can then transfer over to other kinds of baking or cooking, right? Similar thing is is true for mathematics where it's very easy to teach when you're in a hurry, teach a certain area of mathematics through only it's the operations uh, relevant to it Do this, do this, do this, and then assess students that way. Do 30 more on your own after watching me do do a couple on my own uh, as the teacher. And yeah, those it it creates it mortgages a student's understanding far into the future. The point that when you're in calculus, like really people will say will tell you that um, calculus itself isn't hard; it's the algebra that is hard in calculus. I saw this firsthand um, from like the 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 woman who bases my kids is trying to become a plant biologist. She has all these prereqs to take, and I'm, I'm horrified by them. One of them is calculus. Which isn't bad. I think calculus is a, an amazing course that con- has contributed enormously to my understanding of the world. Um, my favorite. In particular, like,
0: <laughs> what was that? It was just my favorite math course ever. Yeah. So I'm. I'm yeah. On
1: that. Yeah. I had I had a, a nearly religious experience that you might you know identify with. Many will not, of course. Um, but it, like the here's what's great about calculus is how it studies change and how it's not just like the, the value of of something right now, but it's how it's changing. Like like for instance, like a, let's say I'm in debt. And is that good or bad? It's bad. But like, how is my debt changing over time? Well, I'm, my debt is decreasing. Like I'm paying it off. That's good. And that idea that the, that the rate of change is important here is such an interesting understanding. It's also so interesting that, the, that it's not just the absolute value of what's happening, like where I am right now in my, in my debt, but like that my debt is decreasing. That curve is going up. It's not just where the point in time is and that we can look at not just the change over time, but the change of the change over time. Like, maybe like yeah, it's going, the curve is going up and that's good, but like it's leveling off and that's bad. Like it indicates in the future I might, might go down like that. That's a, that's such interesting aspects of calculus. And so what is my, what is my you know, kid sitter doing? Not that she's doing what we call the chain rule on algebraic representations of functions. a oh, function. Yes. She's got like F of X equals, you know, X minus two to the second, sine of X minus two to the second power or whatever, like just some like, you know, which, which Machiavellian, you know, character c- concocted this, you know, this function to take the derivative of, and she's forgetting, like, you know, what, how to, how to square a polynomial and, like, and we can feel good, like, okay, like, we, we held the gate, you know, like, the, like, she will not pass, like, we, we know, that based on this standard like she definitely like she fell beneath that standard we can have the the pleasure of certainty in that except that the standard is stupid the standard is stupid and, and it betrays what what you and i have experienced is so interesting and useful to all humans about calculus which is that that study of change at an instantaneous level so anyway um that's that's again speaking to what is valuable to teach and like how we ought to teach it is just to re- realize that probably in, in every course not just math there's, there's operations, there's step-by-steps that are so easy to teach and satisfying to teachers to teach and for students to reproduce and get a good mark on those reproductions that do not speak to larger conceptual issues. I highly encourage you to copy for the show notes a post on my blog. If you search Dan Meyer and what does fluency without understanding look like, you'll see um, dozens of math teachers anyway contributing Illustrations just like this of, say, a student who can calculate the derivative of uh, using the, using the tra- chain rule of a complicated function, but who don't know um, the difference between the second derivative, the first second derivative in the function, like those kinds of things. And, and you can find those all over the place. Can, can follow a recipe exactly, but would not know what to do if a substitution had to be made. Those sorts of examples are, are really important for us to focus on.
0: Yeah, and I'll just say I think your, your blog is actually very interesting, even for uh, non-math teachers. from time to time, there's just great content on there. That's one of my favorites because uh, you, you're, like you said, you're, you're hearing basically reports from all around the country um, in the world of you know what that looks like. And for me as a math teacher, uh, I feel like the part I hate the most about the job is the pressure to, Get to that point where they're going to be able to get 30 problems right, regardless of how sort of arbitrary and contrived those problems are. When the reason I even got into math was because I like a similar feeling and some people might think this is ridiculous if they've never had this kind of math experience, but when you make that first connection, let's say back to calculus one of what it really means to differentiate something and, and you're making that connection to like what slope actually is, but see the problem is you actually have to know what slope is kind of at a at a real level. Um, it's, it's this feeling of awe and beauty that you might get staring at the night sky. And that's the part of math that I love and the part of teaching math I find difficult is it's like we have to work twice or three times as hard, it feels, to bring that out. But I'm wondering if you've ever made this claim, because I don't know if this is just implicit in your work or if you will explicitly make this claim, that if you as a teacher are to focus mostly on the conceptual, not that, you know, I would just say that procedural flows from conceptual understanding. If you are to take that approach, if the test scores and all the requirements tend to follow that is you're no worse off if you were to take the procedural sort of uh, recipe approach anyways is that a claim you'd embrace
1: it's a tempting claim but I like it depends on what is being assessed it absolutely does like different assessments will assess strictly procedural skills and students will not will do much better if they are you know drill drill drilled on those procedural skills and then you pump them full of adrenaline right before the test day so you know all these lifeless corpses in the class will then perk back up for the test. Like that'd be great. Um, I would like, I, I think that what something I've learned from people that I have um, debated with and chat with on the internet about these issues that I didn't always believe is that like there, there is a place where the procedural and the conceptual, they um, they feed into each other. And it's, I don't, I don't think it's, and they also like develop in interesting ways over time that aren't, aren't strictly linear from conceptual to procedural where, Like sometimes you're doing a thing and you don't, you don't know fully like what it's doing and you don't fully understand the concepts and the procedures are a little bit detached from like sense. Um, And then the difference is like how satisfied are we with that? Like the numbers are are turning out correct in the answer key, Um, but to not content ourselves with that and say like, there's still, there is a difference. There are these, there are mathematical zombies in the world that can like, can move um, through all the through loads of problems and get correct answers, but not understand these um, larger conceptual issues. Um, serviced by my readers in my blog, Um, but just I'm trying to imagine that that boundary as a bit more porous than perhaps I did um, in the past.
0: It's funny you say that because, um, in spite of what I what I just said, I I have also um, sort of just through my own teaching experience, I'm uh, now teaching uh, a, a group of students who are really. Really amazing. They're very enthusiastic. They they have some holes as as a as a group, but very enthusiastic. And I'm seeing that play out. Sometimes you do just have to uh, do a bunch of problems and then circle back to the conceptual um, aspect of what you're doing. I guess just all the time, all the time, emphasize that. And sometimes that procedural um, practice is what brings that about. And and I'm wondering now if if you've seen that the. Well, actually, let me take a step back. Before before we make this transition, why don't you tell everybody what Desmos is and your role um, before I ask you questions about it. What is the Desmos graphing calculator?
1: yeah sure so when i was um at stanford doing my doctorate like ed, ed tech really hit an inflection point this is when these massive open online courses were generated or, or started up and this is the future of all education and khan academy kicked into gear at that time other kinds of math software kicked in the gear but it was a, a a boom time for ed tech and i was largely horrified by it as someone who has really enjoyed mathematics i did not see any of what I loved about mathematics reflected in these like multiple choice questions, accompanied by like video lectures and these massive forums with hundreds uh, and thousands of people in them. It, it just seemed like, yeah, this serves someone's goals really well, but it's not students and it's not mathematics. And so I I I looked for collaborators at that time. And the folks at Desmos, so startup in San Francisco, there was like eight of them at the time. They had a really cool product a graphing calculator built on the web, blazing fast, beautifully designed, and completely free, funded by um, contracts with businesses, um, so uh, free to end users like teachers and students. Um, it's on, there's mobile apps for Android and iOS. It's since expanded to geometry and a scientific calculator and a four-function calculator. Um, just really awesome technology. And um, we started collaborating together, and um, now they are folks that we, we we have, a, we serve complementary purposes where they did not have pedagogical backgrounds. I did, I did not have a tech background. They did. And now we combine and we have 17 people. Um, seven former teachers uh, are there, including myself. And we are uh, building activities that have two adjectives in mind, social and creative. We're trying to create social and creative math classes because that's what you and I are using our devices for right now. that's when people use their, their phones or laptops or computers, um, and, In ways that they find exhilarating it's almost always a a creative use or a social use like you and I are communicating across great distances through the Internet right now. Um, Later, I might compose a tweet that tweet will be boring if it doesn't go out into the world like what what do I care if the tweets on my just stored on my laptop somewhere it's creative. Um, But the best experiences have this aspect this element of creativity and social connection so our, um, we do things like we ask students to like create graph art. We ask students to um, create explanations for each other. They create problems for each other. Like they they do a lot of problems from us, activities from us. And we're like, hey, you create these for each other. And it's just so interesting to us. It's been so interesting to see um, the pride and ownership that students take when their work is a creative of more than a multiple choice, Response and be shared not just with like themselves on the laptop, not shared with an algorithm on the laptop that like evaluates them, not even shared with the teacher, but shared with their peers. It's like that piece of work is going to be tuned up. And mm-hmm. students, uh, other students are so much more interested in solving problems that are created by their peers than those that are created by us. So, um, teacher.desmos.com for math teachers has some free activities there that are emblematic of what we are up to. Just really fun stuff, really proud of the work there. Um, Usage growth is, is crazy. Folks are um, just are, are really feeling the vibe, and it, which is challenging because it's a different kind of model for computers in math class, where so many teachers are used to drill, drill software and practice software. We're really trying to get out there. So I'm talking with you right now is I want to promote this vision of computers in math class uh, that are fostering creative and social interactions with students in math and their teachers.
0: Well, I'll tell you I had about... 71 Algebra 1 students on it for about 45 minutes today, and it was awesome. So I, I use it all the time. <laughs> so,
1: really that um, Awesome. Love to, Love you. hear that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's by far, it is my favorite uh, tool to use uh, when it comes. Really, it's just my favorite tool overall. And uh, obviously, that means it's my favorite tech tool to use in the classroom, especially for Algebra 1. And just to tie this uh, back now, I, I found, at least in my own experience, using that tool, it's actually made some of those... I guess I'll say some of those units that in the past I would be like, okay, this is a little bit tough every year. The conceptual understanding here is always a battle. We can get, I can get a certain number of students to get these kinds of questions right, but I always struggle with this or that. I'm finding much of those sort of Uh, pit in your stomach moments as a teacher um, actually being mitigated by the visual aspects and the dynamic of variables that you can you know add sliders for and all the all the features available in Desmos and I'm wondering I have some uh, theories as to why but I I want to hear somebody who's on the design of that like why is it making some of the harder things to understand just so uh, so much easier for students to grasp is it as simple as they can see it or what are the features that are, are really giving us some shortcuts where there were none before
1: You're referring to the the graphing calculator is that right
0: graphing calculator even the student activities are so some of them are so well designed it's like they plant a hook and they lead them in and so I guess there's a lot going on there but let's so let's uh, let's uh, refine the question to just the actual calculator portion why why is that making certain concepts in algebra for example just so much easier for students to learn.
1: Sure, me offer a couple ideas. Um, one is that we, the, the dominant mode of feedback in computer-based math class, and probably in other disciplines also, is, is binary and ego-oriented. You are right or you are wrong, and it's focused on you. It's like, you are right, you are wrong. It's not that the task, is, your, your work is right or wrong, but it, 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 the ego orientation is really hard for students to learn from, because uh, it doesn't offer anything aside from right and wrong, typically, and it, my ego defenses go up when I see that feedback, the red X, the green check. Uh, by contrast, uh, we love feedback by implication um, is one way to think about it, or feedback by interpretation. Think about shooting a basketball, the ball's in midair. You don't then like, see the ball disappear and see a red X or a green check. You like, see the implication of your trajectory, the arc. Um, you see what happens. You see it was off to the left a little bit and you try again. Um, and it's dead on and so what we do in our activities and our graphing calculator is a lot of feedback by implication um, So you type in an equation that you think will go through these three points and it's not that we say nope Didn't work try again or try an entirely new problem Which is the standard mode um, instead we show like here is the equation that you told us to draw and we'll draw it very fast uh, faster than any other similar kind of device or software and you see like, okay, this didn't work and you can try a different coefficient or different kinds of numbers or different function. You keep on trying. You see this feedback by implication until it works or you type in an equation meant to describe this scene and we don't say right or wrong there. We just say, here's what your equation um, implies for this scene. And you see how that your equation has resulted in distortions in the world. And like that's not right, I gotta change this. And you see what those changes do. Us feedback by implication is one of those things. And another I, I would say is um, I've brought the Desmos a strong interest in creating a need for new learning not just saying like hey we love this stuff we're a bunch of dorks we're a bunch of nerds we love this math you'll love it too or to say like you came to us you need a grade we're gonna like offer you a direct route to a good grade instead of say like why did we invent this mathematics why do we invent this skill and folks in other disciplines you can ask the same question about what you're teaching why do we why do we invent commas you know like why do we invent like prepositions what's the deal there um, and so, why do we invent this mathematics? And how can I put students in a place to experience why we invented that mathematics just for a second before we offer them help or assistance in learning that mathematics? And oftentimes, they can generate it on their own because they see the connections to old math. Um, and regardless, if we're helping them, they experience a need for that help, which is something that students appreciate um, over the course of even a tough unit, like you described.
0: I think I think it was. Um, my memory's blurred here. It was today. Um, I've actually had them take sort of a traditional test and then grade their own test using Desmos as a tool to basically figure out if they got a question right or wrong. So more, more um, after the process, and I've even found. Great value in that. Um, talk to us just a little bit more about the teacher.desmos.com and the type of activities that are. Because just from my uh, sort of user experience, those activities are like multiplying at a faster rate and the quality is, is pretty astounding now. So what's going on hey, there? Thank
1: you. I'll, uh, I'll pass it along to my team. They'll be grateful. Um, first of all, back to your original point just a second ago about kids verifying their answers on tests through the calculator. Mm-hmm. That's, how math to, that's how math ought to be. Math is true whether or not a teacher says so. Um, like in a, a literature class, like what is the theme of Beowulf? Like that's the sort of thing where a teacher has a, I think that teacher has a lot of subjective room there to weigh in on a student's answer. Like you, you kind of like it, it's based on like are people convinced by your, your answer for a lot of mathematics, it's like the teacher doesn't need to come and tell you you're right, like you're right, whether you, if you're right, you're right with, that, with or without the teacher say so. Uh, so I love that move that you're doing uh, because it, it communicates to students like, hey, is it like math is not a thing that is that is kept um, by adults. It's mine. So right. that's one thing. Uh, as far as the activities go, yeah, we um, I think. We just have we have designers and engineers and teachers and we all have a pretty healthy respect for where for each other's work, good intuition for that work. We all have a lot of humility about our actual expertise there, um, and so we could just collaborate really well. Um, if folks want to check out some of our highlights, I would look up <clears throat> function, function Carnival, uh, Marble Slides. I'm sure you might have your own that you'd uh, toss out to folks in the show notes. But um, yeah, we are really interested in moving away from supplemental activities you can use like once a week and moving towards a complete curriculum like what would what would a, a eighth grade in Desmos look like so we're thinking a lot about that right now What would be a, a really excellent computer-based eighth grade math class look like
0: oh awesome and then I, I just have to ask are you guys um going 3d anytime soon or is that already um, there? I just don't know it
1: <laughs> no 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 um I'll, I'll pass that request along it's, it's on it's on the list of things we would love to see happen yesterday but uh, <laughs> right. yeah, that list is is heavily triaged and 3D has not made it up to the
0: top yet. So just to, I, I see our, our time is uh, getting short, but we still have some left. So I, I definitely wanted to ask you about your response to this article in the New York Times, an opinion piece, and it was entitled Make Your Daughter Practice Math, She'll Thank You Later. And, well, rather than me uh, summarizing the point there, um, this goes back to our uh, conversation regarding, I think, conceptual understanding and procedural fluency, which I think we often set up a false dichotomy there. But um, I was wondering if you'd be willing to kind of describe uh, the main points made in that article and then then your response, because I just found that uh, back and forth to be pretty valuable as a math teacher myself.
1: Yeah, what a fun time we're in right now where we can just kind of watch a public dialogue of that sort. Um, I can watch others also. So an engineering professor named Barbara Oakley wrote an op-ed in the New York Times um, that caught a lot of heat as uh, a lot of attention as op-eds in the New York Times are wont to do. Um, I had a couple of issues with it. it. It definitely emphasized practice, the need for drills. It spoke that disparagingly of educators who aim for fun as a goal. Something that I can definitely get with a, a fun class is not necessarily a learning class and fun is not necessarily the highest goal that we aspire to. Um, but there's was a, a massive conflation of terms. And this might come from the fact that, that she's a professor of engineering and might not have uh, the same vocabulary that the teachers listening to this podcast do about uh, education and instruction. Like there's a, a one paragraph in particular Um, that really kind of gave the whole game away that was um, like like talking about it completed conceptual learning it completed fun it put those on the the other side Uh, also uh, understanding uh, it comes under a lot of attack and on the other side of that is uh, practice and these these concepts are not diametrically opposed they aren't even um, related to each other the ones that were on one side like teachers who pursue fun and teachers who pursue conceptual understanding are often very different teachers. And so to see those both lumped in this same kind of like, hey, watch out for this crowd um, was uh, surprising. Uh, indicative of someone who hadn't really thought through the issues all that well. But there's like, there's a definite sense like um, from, there, there are concerned parents out there who, who see students struggling with basic computations well into middle school. And I am 100% in agreement Um, with people who would say like kids should be able to multiply ads and subtract uh, and divide like, you know, numbers up to a hundred pretty easily without a calculator by the time you hit fourth or fifth grade. Like those are sorts of, there's a certain level at which I'm like, yeah, definitely. Like like we need to just have these things uh, down and memorized and automatic and fluent because it lets us do more interesting things, not for their own sake. And that might be where I would uh, disagree um, with some of my critics that those things are important, but not just, for their own, because the less I have, when I'm doing an interesting math problem, something that interests me, the less I have to think about um, subsidiary or basic skills, the, the more interesting that main question becomes to me if I'm not focused on like, what are my times tables again? Um, so I, I'm very enthusiastic about parts of it, other parts, like I just think that teachers, here's my message my message to teachers and math teachers in particular, is that um, no one out there knows what you're saying if you say conceptual understanding. This is my big takeaway of this whole thing. Is that conceptual understanding by this op-ed author Barbara Oakley was like happy fun times playtimes, like it was it was uh, just like you know putting on costumes and dancing around in math class. Um, one researcher, uh, Paul Morgan, was like, "Yeah, this is conceptual understanding is the same thing as uh, as music and dance in math class." And this is not what is meant by conceptual understanding by researchers who write and say the Adding It Up volume. This, this blog post I'm mentioning has all sorts of examples from teachers who are concerned about students who have procedural fluency, who can follow a recipe in the kitchen, but have no idea how to, make. if like one ingredient is out, is the whole, is the whole meal sunk or is there some replacement that's possible? What are these ingredients doing together um, in the oven? Like what is, how do I transfer this to another dish? There are all these examples in math class also and, and probably other disciplines uh, and parents and even professionals in other fields like engineering do not understand what, what is meant by conceptual understanding. So we, as, as a profession, if we care about that distinction, we need to be very precise in our language. And a company calls for better understanding of concepts with examples of what that means Uh, when, when it's absent, when procedural fluency is absent, that kind of understanding. So for me, is that, is that like a metaphor towards cooking, I believe would be accessible to more people than just like my math nerd friends. I can also sum up examples uh, that math folk can understand easily. Um, that's the sort of thing that, that we need to be very careful about protecting.
0: I think you make a really good point about the looseness with which we use that term, you know, conceptual when it pertains to math. And I am guilty of this. I, I think, unfortunately, uh, we, we sort of are part of the problem. When I say we, I mean education and educators. I don't know if we've really hashed that out as well as, as we ought to, but on on the parent side of things, uh, you brought up, you know, the concern of not being able to do basic computations by middle school, and I, I couldn't agree with you more, but I'm also wondering if, if you see sort of from from a 30,000 foot view, you know, Common Core comes in, things are changing. So parents are literally seeing, you know, algorithmic changes in, in how students are solving problems on the worksheets coming home. And then if they sort of couple that with a, a lack of what they would see as math ability, that's a that's a recipe for lack of public support in the exact type of op-eds we see here.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, yeah, we, we, we have lots of interesting new recommendations and standards, even mandates in the standards for different kinds of models that students can use to subtract numbers or to multiply numbers, um, you know, arrays or, or number lines, that kind of thing. Um, And meanwhile, parents have like this method that they learned uh, that involves an algorithm that, you know, if they are going to subtract 2018 minus 1999, like that algorithm recommends a very long and tedious process of going column by column and subtracting and carrying and, and subtracting and carrying when like, if you have the understanding of uh, how a number line operates and how to count up, you're like, oh, I'm going to count up one to 2000 and then 18 more to 2018. And the answer is 19 much faster. Right. But the problem is, is that we send home problems um, like like what, what is, um, you know, what is 27 minus 14, a problem that is so easily solved by that algorithm involves none of this, quote unquote, carrying of ones. Um, and so, and then we say you've got to you got you to gotta solve this using this unfamiliar method. So the unfamiliar method is is perceived as meaningless and useless and arbitrary. Um, whereas if we if we assign problems home that highlight for parents like why we're doing these these newer methods, these newer ways of understanding mathematics, we'll have a better shot at, at more public buy-in.
0: Absolutely, I was uh, you made me think of this situation with like the order of operations, which is one of my personal. Uh, pet peeves. I, I love to help students um, debate the question whether that's just, you know, made up by mankind completely, or if it's like a necessary uh, outflow of, of the operations themselves. And I think I think the word savvy comes to mind when it comes to having students solve problems um, really in a more efficient route and, and not relying overly on standard algorithms. But at the same time, if they have no algorithm, they have no way of solving certain problems. So I suppose there's there's a definite balance. I know our time is dwindling short, but I want to squeeze in um, a question for you regarding Jo Bowler's growth mindset and her work uh, with that pertaining to math because I, I wasn't sure how closely uh, you worked uh, with her at Stanford. And so maybe just give us kind of your uh, general perspective on how the growth mindset is influencing our work in math. And if you see that sort of intimately tied with uh, your work and things like uh, the Desmos uh, graphic calculator, of course, the um, you know three act math. I know I'm throwing a lot of things out here we haven't talked about, but I'm going to link everything uh, open middle, all, all these things that uh, you're known for in the math teaching community. Do you see that is uh, somehow in tandem with Joe Buller's growth mindset uh, approach to math?
1: Yeah, I see. I see Joe Bowler's work and the work of U cubed, which uh, any math teacher here would do well to go look up as um, growth mindset is just one facet of that work. Like she has researched math education for a very long time. And um, so a lot of what gets lumped under growth mindset um, is better fit under a a less coherent collection of techniques and curricula called like multidimensional mathematics is one way it's described. And I think it's great. Growth mindset is um, is a much narrower concept that's um, more complex in my head. I see like um, I see a lot of folks just kind of staple on inspirational messages to terrible math problems and count that as a win. I, so I'm I'm much I, I try to take a, a broader view than just growth mindset. So that's one strategy of many that inspire me and in the work that we do uh, at Desmos. Um, so I, I I find myself. Oriented strongly around adjectives like creative and social, and trying to find out where those take me. I love to figure out what to treat students as people who have sense about mathematics before I teach them anything. Uh, Kids come to their first years of school knowing quite a bit about quantity and even number, Um, and so like I'm inspired by uh, folks like Marilyn Burns or um, the authors of the Five Practices for Orchestrating Productive mathematical discussions, uh, Peg Smith and Mary Kay Stein, like who, who talk about like how, how to surface student understanding and work with that in meaningful wa- ways to help build their understanding and not just overwrite it. There's there's all these kinds of schools of thought and curriculum design um, are intertwined in interesting ways, but not no one uh, fully describes what's necessary to do in mathematics today.
0: Yeah, it's uh, interesting. I think we just published in, uh, a short little article by somebody who has Basically concerned that growth mindset was going to die from its own popularity, so that I think I think this teacher had seen sort of the example of the inspirational messages essentially stapled to terrible problems. So a good a good point taken there. Um, I definitely want to give you the last word. So anything um, else you want to let our listeners know about? Where can they connect with you, and what should they be um, I guess looking for uh, forward to in the future if they're teachers of mathematics?
1: Yeah, yeah. Check me out on uh, on Twitter or my blog. Just search Dan Meyer Twitter or Dan Meyer uh, blog. Those will pop up. I'd love to hear your thoughts on my thoughts. I benefit enormously from the folks that I interact with online. They've made me so much smarter in so many ways. Um, keep an eye on uh, teacher.desmos.com for interesting activities there. Um, and push like I'm just think hard about like what messages your software is sending students about mathematics the stuff that you use in class is it telling students that math is antisocial, uncreative it's a solitary act you do you watch adults talking at you and then you repeat that with some multiple choice problems or is it sending students the message that math is social and creative and needs your thoughts your interesting thoughts so uh, people are just making what they think you want to buy they're making what you think what they think you want to buy so make sure they're thinking the right thing about that Yeah. Thanks a lot. Joseph.
0: Thank you. And I promised I'd give you the last word, but it turns out I I lied because I forgot there's one one story I just had to tell you. So in 2013, I was wonderful to meet you very briefly. I'm sure you have no idea who I am still from this brief encounter. Anyways, I got a selfie with you and I took it to my classroom and I told my students, my students measured my height and they are absolutely there's a whole group of of, uh, gosh, I guess now probably juniors, of kids who are absolutely convinced you are six foot three-quarter inches tall in spite of your claim to be six foot seven. or oh, I'm sorry, six foot six inches and three-quarter – I can't even talk. Six feet, six and three-quarter inches tall in spite of your claim of being six feet seven inches. So <laughs> I just thought I'd, I'd let you know there's a whole group of kids very skeptical of your six foot seven claim.
1: That indicates lots of confidence in the predictive power of mathematics. They're within one quarter of, I mean, they could be right for all I know. I don't measure myself daily and you know, what happens to be old, but uh, I, I thought you were going to say like six foot three and off by four inches. But like, if I, if I did the same math and I was off by a quarter inch, I'd feel pretty happy about math right there.
0: Absolutely. In, in fact, we were, but they uh, they didn't seem to be satisfied with the idea that we should round up. So I just thought I'd pass it along. And thank you cool. again for being with us today.
1: <laughs> Send them my address. Uh, tell them to get at me. We'll, we'll settle this in
0: the streets. <laughs> Will do. Uh, thanks a lot. And uh, wish you the best. Thanks for coming on.
1: Take care. Bye.